0: Our world on KCB, one hundred six point five FM Los Angeles one hundred two point three FM Riverside and one hundred five oh AM Palm Springs.
2: Okay, welcome back. And joining us now, as we said, we have the one and only Mark Safrick. Thanks for being here.
1: Hey, thanks, Alan. I appreciate it. I look forward to uh, educating your listeners.
2: Now. Mark, this is the first time you've been on our show, so uh, let's give a little bit of history of who you are and and, um, what you have been doing in uh, the criminal world.
1: Well, uh, I started my uh, career as a police officer in California, uh, made detective and worked in uh, violent crimes, and it was really as I was working homicide cases that I uh, went to a homicide school and there were a couple of FBI profilers that were... Giving us a lecture in the early 80s, and I became fascinated, absolutely fascinated, with this particular way of looking at at complex homicides. And I I decided to try to apply that to the cases I was working on, and uh, that began my involvement with the FBI's Behavioral Sciences Unit, and uh, it eventually led me to apply to the FBI as a special agent. I got in. Uh, I traveled around uh, the country in different, uh, in different locations. I, my first one was uh, I worked the Indian Reservation in, uh, in Wyoming, worked all the violent crimes there, um, then went to New York and then to Sacramento, and then uh, I applied to, when, when openings finally came up in the behavioral analysis unit, I applied and uh, was accepted. Which is where I would always wanted to be. So I spent the first 11 years of my FBI career uh, working uh, the streets, and then the, the last almost 13 years as uh, as a profiler, criminal profiler in the FBI's behavioral analysis unit before I retired after 23 years. And then uh, I joined Bob Ressler who was one of the icons in uh, in this whole field, one of the one of the guys who originally started it, and uh coined the term serial killer back in the 70s and um, took over his business uh forensic behavioral services which I have now been president of for uh, over 12 years now uh, doing the same kind of work uh, essentially that I did in in the unit uh, I mean I've branched out I do a lot of uh, a lot a lot of media work television uh uh single episodes and series and uh research and publishing and so I try to keep my finger in a lot of little pies.
2: You know, um, what do you think the biggest misconception is in the public um, when it comes to behavioral analysis?
1: I I think the biggest misconception, because people talk about the term profiling, criminal profiling and it's really one of the one of the assessment tools that we use under the umbrella of criminal investigative analysis and i and i've had a number of people who said are you profiling me and and i'm i don't really profile people i'm not assessing someone i'm assessing behavior because generally from a law enforcement perspective and that's of course what the FBI is a law enforcement agency working, and as a criminal profiler, you're working on other law enforcement agencies, complex serial murder cases or uh, sexual homicides or serial sexual uh, assaults, you are assessing behavior because generally we don't have the offender. We have a crime and we have a crime scene. So it's... Really looking at these complex cases from a multidisciplinary approach. Criminal profiling is really, I think, from what most people think of it, and, and I think a lot of that is framed uh, through their reference in television shows that have appeared over the years. Uh, that you know we we are looking at the killer, assessing the killer, but really we we never have the killer for the most part. We only have what the killer leaves behind or what the rapist leaves behind, their behavior, the physical evidence, the forensic evidence, that whole dynamic totality of the circumstances of particular types of crimes. And from that, we then extract information, uh, induce information, deduce information to to come up with sort of a composite of an individual. That would be criminal profiling, but there are a number of other aspects that we can be involved with with law enforcement agencies from helping craft search warrants to uh, investigative considerations to expert testimony work in, in cases which I have done a lot of. Uh, generally I would say that all of this comes from crime scene analysis you you have to understand the dynamics of what's happening in these cases and I think it's it's important to understand for people to understand that most violent crimes really are not amenable to being behaviorally assessed because there's simply not enough behavior so the types of crimes that we would get involved in or the cases that I'd get involved in are, are much more complex where you have multiple victims or multiple offenders or you have a significant period of time that's, that the two spend together and a lot of aberrant behavior or excessive violence. When you have what we would describe as psychopathology within the crime, that's extensive that is really the realm within which we work uh but i think the general public gets skewed about profiling and it's just profiling the killer you know uh, you know looking at the killer and and assessing them and and it's really not that's really not the process
2: have you have you noticed uh, a big change in these um Killers and serial killers um, nowadays as compared to what they were in the 60s and
1: 70s? Um, I think uh, with the advent of the, uh, of the advances in forensic technology, I've, I've noticed not in all killers and probably not in, probably in very few, but there are some uh, of the more organized, uh, intelligent offenders who – will take into account the forensic advances that have been made. So they're more they're more aware of leaving particular types of forensic evidence. I, I remember working uh, a serial case of uh, of a young man who was uh, raping and uh, murdering elderly females and was actually removing the fingernails of these women. I think he thought that, you know, in the struggle when they would scratch him, that, uh, you know, he was leaving DNA under their fingernails. So he was making a conscious effort to have that, you know, forensic evidence taken away. Uh, So I I think there are some cases where, you know, they're more conscious, but a, a lot of what drives, you know, especially serial offenders. Is, uh, you know, a n- need-driven behavior, what we would really describe as ritualistic behavior. And, and that behavior really has to be engaged in by these offenders. It's part of the crime for them, but, uh, oftentimes it's, um, it can also be, uh, detrimental in terms of the fact that th- it causes them or forces them to leave, you know, more evidence than, than they normally would.
2: So now, the, the series Mindhunter Hunter has been pretty popular in, in, in the public. Um, what What's your feeling on that? Is it a good
1: thing? Um, you know, there's been a lot of shows over the decades. Uh, I think people sometimes get concerned that we're, you know, all these television shows, whether they're true crime or, you know, uh, odes to true crime, are instructing offenders and maybe. Uh, to a, a small extent, they are. But um, you know, you have to, especially in television, you have to combine aspects of reality and factual, uh, the factual nature of forensic evidence with the, the need to entertain people. So I think Mindhunter is is doing that. I, I I think that they've flipped the roles. I mean, I know that they've flipped the roles of of the two primary individuals in this uh... my partner is actually one of those individuals but he actually was had the larger role he was the one organizing and taking the research forward but he's treated uh... in the series as the one who's really not interested And so factually nobody really would know that unless you were you know had been involved in the in the fbi's behavioral unit but I mean, overall, I think they've tried to recreate the the killers that they're interviewing and sort of the dynamics of uh, how this process started. You know, to to make it both factual and entertaining at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talked to Ann Burgess as well, and she said pretty huh, yeah. much the same thing. <laughs> yeah. I know yeah. Ann very well, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're taking quite a few liberties with this with the show. So, oh, for sure, yeah. But I think I mean you have to do that. Whether it's Criminal Minds or it's CSI uh, Las Vegas, which I consulted for for about eight or nine years, you know, you you have to take the. I know from that show at least, you know, they were trying to be accurate, forensically accurate, and process-wise accurate. But of course, you're also doing a show. You're trying to entertain people in a very short period of time. So, you know, timeframes get crunched, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of liberties taken, you know, because if you tried to show the reality, especially like of what I do, it would be mind-numbingly boring. Right. So, so, so you have to make it entertaining for people. So
2: now you've um, moved on to, um, or moved on, but you've added to your uh, repertoire, You're, you've written a book. And it's called Spree Killers. Um, what, what, was, what was the cause of that? Like, why did you write that?
1: It actually, it, I was actually uh, up in Pennsylvania uh, getting ready to lecture for my co author, uh, Dr. Catherine Ramblin, and we were having dinner one night, and this was about a year and a half ago, when we were discussing a case uh, that had happened, uh, got a lot of national attention. Uh, the, the Dwight Lamont Jones case in, uh, in Arizona, a- and we recognized that uh, in discussing the case that law enforcement had actually been in a position to proactively intercept uh, Jones uh, before he was able to um, kill more of the victims that he had on his list. And we thought that was an interesting dynamic, one uh, for two reasons. One is that this was really a spree killing, um, and and spree killings really have not gotten very much interest uh, through the academic and research world. Um, But also, you know, quite opposite to what you find in serial and mass murders, which typically law enforcement is in a reactive mode to those cases they're always responding to the case with with certain well we didn't know it at the time but we knew at least with the Jones case that that type of case uh, law enforcement could be proactive and actually uh, identify or potentially identify the offender to capture them or stop them and potentially future victims So we decided initially that we thought we could write a paper about this. We could start to collect spree murder cases. We would define it um, and then collect these cases. Then try to organize them into some categories, which which actually has never been done. So that so our book is the first is the first real attempt to do this. By the time we reached about 128 cases we realized there were many more cases that we could collect not only here but internationally which we wanted to do and that this was a bigger project than just an article and we decided that we would then continue with the research and um, and do a book on it and as the, As we went along in collecting our cases and analyzing them and and breaking down the interesting or important components at least as we saw them, um, our categories that we initially set up started to change and shift. The more cases we got, the more types of killers that we were able to identify. We were able to refine our categories so um, it it became very interesting and we we ended up, I think, when we finally cut off our research, we were at a 419 killers, which is really uh, the largest database of pure spree killers in the world. There have been a number of publications, uh, books and such, that have been written with spree killer in the title or focusing on spree killers, and I read them all in, in, in preparation for, for this book. And what I really learned was that not one of those books had, uh, had a pre, had a, had a pure spree killer collection of cases. There was a mixture of some mass murder cases, a lot of serial cases, and spree cases, all being referred to as spree murder cases. And in some of the books, the, despite the fact that they were really talking about spree murder, they never defined it. There was no definition anywhere in the book about what a spree murder really was. So it was really clear to us that we would clearly define it, clearly identify categories based on our analysis. Um, And then, um, you know, we were able to put all of our killers into these different categories.
2: Why why do you think there has been no... um interest or no, no real books out on it in the, in, in the act
1: Well I think what happens is you've got you know sp- serial murder and mass murder are well researched, uh, well written about as, as we all know um, And spree murder sort of falls in between those it shares initially it it's from the initial definitions it would share components. With serial and components with mass, and even in our categories, um, you know some of our categories shift when you shift spree murder closer to serial, you know you see certain components in the cases that resemble serial murder, a longer time frame. But you have spree cases that also can shift close to on this continuum close to mass murder. And we developed a category to to capture that what, that we call movement in tight locations, and I think most researchers basically would try to shoehorn spree killers uh, really into um, into either the mass category or into the serial category. We the, the FBI did define spree murder, but you know it. It was an attempt that, in some cases, overlap serial and other cases overlap mass, and I think that's you know that's where we were going with this. The FBI was trying to to get delineations between these categories that made sense, and, and, and what happened was in 2005, uh, actually our my unit, the the adult crimes unit in the profiling unit. We decided that because there was so much discussion about serial murder and how it should be defined and categorized and what should we use, should we use time frames or number of victims or motives for these offenders, we decided to pull together experts from around the world to discuss this phenomenon and to redefine it because a lot of people weren't happy with the def fbi's definition of of serial murder and in the book we go into this and i go into the whole history of how this process came about but the end result is that when we eventually did decide uh, you know when we des- defined uh, serial murder one of the key components that differentiated serial murder from spree murder was this well quote cooling off period or this uh, time this temporal piece or timepiece that separated the murders in serial murder? When that that part of the definition was eliminated, um, because the current definition really is the unlawful killing of two or more victims by the same offender in separate events. And we used to def- we used to have this cooling off period in there, but When we removed that, it basically made the definition of serial murder the same as spree murder. So our argument was, you know, the the, the symposium attendees said, well, let's eliminate spree because, you know, now there's no difference between that and serial. And you basically subsume all the spree cases or most of them into serial. But our argument was that, um, spree is a valid category. There are, there are types of multicides, the, this multicide of spree that, that clearly is different than serial and clearly different than mass murder and that it has a usefulness to law enforcement when they're investigating these cases. And that's really, you know, what prompted Catherine and I to move forward with this. Um, but there 's really n- never been a lot of research in spree murders. I think you know serial murder and mass murders uh, you know, garner the headlines we We talk about spree murders in the media um, but not very much research has ever been done on those cases and This is really I think one of the first sort of seminal works on on spree murder and we have a lot of cases, and every one of them is summarized in the book and, and how we categorize it. And it, I think it's a it's a pretty worthwhile database in terms of how we were able to, you know, come up with these categories that actually all of our cases fit into.
2: What exactly um, is it that – or what would you describe – um, are the main characteristics of a spree killer as opposed to serial Right, killer. so
1: the definition we have of spree killing one of the, one of the early def- we didn't think two victims was too close to the serial murder definition. We, we needed to have a definition that, that sort of uh, exemplified as Reinhardt put it uh, in some early research, chain killing. And, and so Catherine and I thought about this very carefully because definitions are very important. We didn't want to go too far afield and change up everything, but we want
0: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
1: Uh, basically tune it up. So the way that we've defined it is at least three murders in at least two locations arising from a key precipitating incident that continues to fuel the need to kill, and that these murders occur, occur fairly close in time. And we recognized that, you know, when you say fairly close, you know, well, fairly close to one person, can mean one thing, and to somebody else, can mean something different. But it's three, at least three murders in at least two locations where the first murder sort of what precipitates the first murder fuels the rest of the murders. Um, and our time frames, and, and that's why we have categories that, and some get closer to serial where those time frames are spread out more in terms of weeks, and then we have others. That move like the movement in tight locations locations, which generally moves closer to mass murder, where the time frame may be hours or you know uh, a day or uh, mu- mu- a much shorter time frame so that that 's how we defined spree and and we also discussed our use of the term fairly close in time because if you If you make it so defined that uh, we didn't want cases to be excluded that we really felt were spree cases, so we used this term fairly close in time, but in each of the categories we you know we define that what what defines the category and so we're we're pretty clear about that.
2: Do you think that the um, policing and uh, police agencies get enough? No, training not, not at in this all.
1: Area? I mean, I, I know I've been through a lot of training, of course, especially within um, serial murder, sexual homicide, mass murder, but there's almost no training um, on spree killers, and I think that's. I think that is one of the of the premises that we're really trying to get out to law enforcement. That is, if you can recognize that you have a spree killer there are things you can do to become proactive if if you have the right category and I just don't think law enforcement gets that kind of training you know about this this type of multicide we get we get training and and I do it myself uh, I, I lecture a lot on sexual homicide on serial murder and on mass murder but uh, but the the actual training on spree killers uh, and and this is borne out by really by the the paucity of research that is out there on this type of multicide. Um, I think law enforcement would you know, benefit greatly um, especially violent crime investigators, homicide investigators, to understand sprees, how they're defined and categorized, and uh, And then when they get those kind of cases to then be thinking about, you know, is this the type of category that do our cases fall into a category that where we can be proactive or do they fall into another type of category where we can't be? Because if they if we can't be proactive, then we just have to go back to good old, uh, you know, our police work, you know, boots on the ground, you know, forensic work uh, to to solve these cases, but if you recognize you may have a different um, category that, that you may be able to work with uh, proactively, then you can you know move forward in that direction and hopefully save lives and, and or you know um, intercept the offender. When I think of spree killing, I think of uh, Charles Stark Starkweather and uh, Carol Ann Fugate, as well as uh, John Allen Muhammad and Lee Boyd Malvo. Um, those are some famous cases. Is there anything more obscure that you think might interest our listeners? Well, I think there's there's cases that we tend to think of as uh, perhaps uh, of serial killers like Andrew Cunanan. Mm-hmm. Right, so I think if you ask most people, uh, law enforcement people or researchers, criminologists, they would probably put Cunanan in the category of serial killer. But actually, you know, he kills. Although the time frame is quite long, and he's one of the longest in our in our uh, in our research, uh, he is killing over that time frame, and he is on the move hmm. the whole time. So. He really is, by our definitions, a spree killer. And then you take someone like, um, uh, like Anders Brevik, very well known, uh, killer in Norway. Uh, and I think most people think of Brevik as a serial, or excuse me, as a mass murderer, which he is. There's, there's no doubt that he's a mass murderer. Um, but I think most people don't know that Brevik you know set a bomb off in Oslo, Norway that killed eight people, and the purpose of the bomb was to draw law enforcement to him to that location so that he could then move to the island of Utoya where he killed sixty nine children you know most people when you talk about Anders Breivik, you would say he's a mass murderer and and that's and that's the thing right so it gets confusing, you know, because he is a mass, he, is a, he did commit mass murder, but when you take all of his homicides together, he really is a spree killer. So it was part Martin. of a spree, yeah. It's part of a spree because mm-hmm. you have three or more victims in two or more locations. It's just that he's, he's so well known for the 69 murders that happened on the island and that most of them were children. So it's really horrific. But most people would say he's a mass murderer, and, and he is, but in reality, he really fits into the spree category. And that's, and that's the problem, is that, you know, originally sprees overlap serial and they overlap mass murder, and it, be, it became confusing for people. And I think what Catherine and I are trying to do in this is to actually define it so that it's, it's separate and distinct from serial and from mass and then to develop categories which we have uh, some are, work to be proactive for law enforcement and other, uh, others of the category don't work. You, you aren't going to be able to utilize the, the, the techniques and the things that we talk about for some of these categories.
2: So now, what were some of the most unique cases you've dealt with in in the
1: serial oh, killer world? It's, I mean, I've dealt, I've dealt with serial, I've dealt with serial well, what, murder cases around the world, uh, because of course the FBI has an international presence through our legal attaché. So we get requests uh, when I was in the unit. We got requests. From all over. Of course, most of our cases come from within the U.S., but um, I would say uh, uh, the uh, Robert Yates case for me, the Spokane serial murder case, uh, was one of the bigger cases that I worked on. Um, I, it was a case that I not only worked on when it was unsolved, uh, but also after it was solved and then testified. As an expert witness for the um, Pierce County Prosecutor's Office for the for two of the homicides that um, Robert Yates had committed, um, but the Rodney Alcala case uh, that I've worked on for um, New York District Attorney's Office, um, and and sometimes these cases weren't actually my case, but uh, I would travel. Uh, with a colleague, you know to work on a, a serial case, the Baton Rouge serial killer Derek Todd Lee, I was down there um, we we developed a very good strategy for identifying Lee um, so some of the cases I've had uh, uh, I've worked on and then actually testified in those cases, and uh, others I've worked on and but uh, they're all. They're, there's no case that we would get in the unit that wasn't really a high-profile case. If we if it's coming into the behavioral analysis unit, especially if it's a serial murder case, then it's it's garnered a lot of national attention.
2: What what's your thought on on these um, high-profile cases being televised uh, during the whole? Uh, court
1: um, I think that's process. fine. I don't have I don't have a problem with any of that. Uh, They're oftentimes multi-week or multi-month trials, so for someone to actually sit through that, but um, it's an educational process. I think for people who watch it, uh, one of the things that uh, one of the areas that uh, that we've had to dispel. Especially, I noticed this. uh, Especially, testifying as an expert on the stand is, um, you know, this sort of this is called the CSI effect. You know, the the time frame that actual forensics uh, and what we can actually do with fingerprints and DNA uh, sometimes on television is unrealistic and juries who watch a lot of television have oftentimes have an unrealistic expectation of what we can do with forensic evidence in the lab and sometimes testifying is basically a way to educate the jury as to what we can and you know the limitations of certain types of uh, of forensic analysis along with you know because I when I'm testifying I'm incorporating my analysis of the forensic evidence, the physical evidence, whether that was tested or not, um, and the behavioral evidence, integrating those together. So I have to talk to the physical evidence uh, and the forensic evidence as an integral part of the overall whole along with the behavioral dynamics in, in a scene and sometimes educating the juries about you know the limitations of what you know. What's really realistic in terms of getting fingerprints or you know touch DNA or you know whatever expectation they might have about certain types of um, evidence. I think it's it. yeah. I think it's a, it's and so it's what's not only educating them about the particular crime but also about you know what what is really realistic. In the real world, the real forensic world, as opposed to the forensic world on on a television show.
2: Yeah, yeah, quite a difference. You know, I was just wondering if social media, or if you think that um, uh, things being tele- televised, because if you you know some some people get um, really put under um, scrutiny by um, by so many others just outside of it, they might not like. Like you, or they don't oh, like your absolutely. hair or your tie. Um, well, you know, I mean, look at Marcia Clark and, and all that. I just wonder if. Um, if well, that really I kind guess of, it just depends kind of on how much, much media itself. attention
1: it gets. You know, the these there's not very many high profile trials that are that are televised, but um, all of the information is you know being vetted through a judge. Uh, through the prosecutor and defense attorneys as to what can come in uh, legally, what can't, uh, what's heard outside the presence of the jury. And then, of course, these these are decisions all made by the jury. So, you know, I I don't know that it affects... it, It certainly would affect the people within the trial, but I don't know that it affects the outcome of the trial, and that would be my bigger concern about... Televising something. Wow,
2: it's interesting.
1: Uh, What do you? It's more. You you know, the book is really a textbook. Uh, I think one of the advantages of the book is that every case in the in the four hundred nineteen cases all have a summary, and they come from forty three countries. So there's quite an international component. It's more of a text and reference guide, uh, so if you read it, what you start to understand is how these categories were comprised, how we developed them, what they mean, what you can do with them, and what you can't. Uh, so I think that that's the key. Uh, law enforcement can use it as a reference uh, guide, and I think that was part of what we were trying to do, but also i think the most important aspect to take away is that there there is a really well-defined type of murder that is a spree killing and that we can and have developed categories much like we have for serial murder much like we have for mass murder and unlike serial and unlike mass murder there are several of those categories that where law enforcement can be proactive, and we share those those cases in the book where law enforcement has recognized you know we need to get on the social media aspect of our victims, potentially if we know who the offender is in in their social media aspects or potential suspects um, you know and and utilize that information in order to um, be able to move forward in identifying the offender or potential victims, so that we can make them aware, warn them that they need to, uh, you know, either move or make themselves safe, uh, and and that's very real. That's a proactive way to save lives by intercepting this case uh, if you recognize what you're dealing with, and and. That is not something that we really can do in serial murder or in mass murder, but we can do it in spree murders. And this book basically tells you these are the types of categories where you can do it and these are the categories where you can't. And then how do you do it? What should you be focusing on? How do you determine which category your homicides are falling into? So that, that's, I think, the crux of, of the book. And and it really is the first work that's been done on serious work that's been done on spree murders with an exceptionally large database um, that, that we're still updating. I mean, I think I've gathered at least another 25 cases, uh, some very recent cases, that we will eventually incorporate into a second edition. So we'll, we'll always be adding to this to this case list um, and increasing our totals. And, and hopefully that will give us... Um, it w- I think it will spur also more research within the criminology field uh, to do more research on spree murders. And you know our argument is the FBI did away with that category in 2005, but we think for some killers that is a valid category and it should be brought back. That's our argument. We we should bring, the FBI should bring spree killers back that multicide um, category and then, you know, utilize the categories that we've put together.
2: And when you say international um, component, do you find that um, spree killers, and even serial killers in other countries uh, have a different um, different format or way that they kill. And do the police take a it, different it's um, Because there's
1: so much uh, a real diversity in the types of cases that we have internationally. So we have 43 countries, and some of those are very poor countries. Some of those are Western countries. So it's, it's difficult to compare all of the international cases but what I w- but I, I think some of the overall generalities for most of our offenders they follow along with what we found in the United States in terms of uh, being male offenders mostly white offenders. Um, I think the weapons used internationally change from the U.S. That uh, internationally we find the use more you know a greater use of um, edged weapons. As opposed to guns uh, in the, in this country, um, but on other but on other areas, it's difficult to compare the, that a particular country to the U.S. or the countries that we've uh, looked at um, to other countries. Just because it's, there's such a diverse range of, of uh, economic uh, success and uh, culture and population. Um, but, but I think generally the, 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 the more, uh, I would just say sort of the, the topics across the board, male offenders, uh, Caucasian offenders still holds true internationally. Weapons change, uh, some, uh, w- whether they're traveling from the scene in a vehicle or on foot, that changes, um. But overall I would say uh, pretty homogeneous group of offenders uh, in the major categories or in the major aspects of of these killers that we looked at uh, around the around the globe and we 're still trying to gather you know we'd like to get we know, we know there are spree killers in every country it's just that we didn't have really the resources to make contacts in every country. We utilized our resources, I utilized my international resource contacts around the world to get cases in, in a number of countries. But we know that these killers exist everywhere. We we would really like to get more international uh, spree killer cases. And, and perhaps if we have more, then we can actually uh, make a comparison among, um, say, uh, countries in Africa. Uh, or in South America, so maybe there's, with more of those cases, we could make some comparisons. But right now, I, I don't think it's would be a fair comparison to look at the international component just by itself. Okay. Well, now you uh, have I website? have my website oh, uh, fbsinternational.com. Yeah, we'll That's like F- Forensic Behavioral Services International.
2: FBS Fantastic Okay, we'll have that up on our website along with your book so people listening can do one click and pick up the book Again, thank you very much for taking the time Thanks very much, Alan I I appreciate it and uh, I hope your listeners found it interesting Thanks so much, Mark
0: This has been a production of Something Weird Media. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com.
1: Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well,
2: good night.